0: bunch of headlines. New York City in talks to offer free vaccines to to, uh, tourists, Pfizer and BioNTech capacity. Uh, They say they've got as much uh, capacity to make as many as three billion doses of their vaccine this year. That's more than double the amount the partners predicted, uh, Tim, just six months ago. And then we just talked about German Chancellor Angela Merkel.
1: Well, let's get right to it with Amber D'Souza, professor of epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She joins us on the phone from Baltimore. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Professor D'Souza, thanks so much for for joining us. I want to get right to it with the big news that came yesterday from the Biden administration about patent protections for vaccines. It is very controversial. And indeed, after the news came out, the vaccine, many of the vaccine makers plunged, uh, in the in the stock market um is this a good idea
2: well it is critical for us to get as many people as we can vaccinated and increasing vaccine um um accessibility is in everyone's interest so while it's hard to balance the interests of these companies that have done an amazing job making these vaccines it is really important that we increase access uh, and keep access um, for everyone possible for these vaccines.
0: And can we not do that with the existing structure? You know, I'm a
2: scientist, so I'm going to okay. leave that policy <laughs> questions to those who are able to answer that.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. But as a scientist, it sounds like it makes sense to you that the more hands that are involved in making the drugs that work, the quicker we can get it out to more people globally.
2: Is that fair? Yeah, to me, the issue really is that with the um, current licensed vaccines here in the U.S., we're going to be able to get hopefully high vaccine uptake, you know, domestically. We're already doing pretty well. And over these next few months, we have a lot of hope that here in the U.S. we'll be able to control rates. But we are influenced globally by what is happening everywhere. It really is in our interest to make sure that there's wide access to this vaccine everywhere because that's going to decrease the ability of the virus to mutate Um, and bring um, different strains back here. It's good for the global economy and our Mm. economy. It's it's in everyone's interest to make sure that we can get high vaccination in other countries. So Amber,
0: this focus on getting to herd immunity, certainly here in the United States, but getting there globally, is that gonna be difficult to do when you've got India reporting its highest ever daily tally of over 412,000 new virus cases and a record almost 4,000 deaths?
2: Absolutely. Things are really dire in several other countries, Uh, and India is uh, top of that list. They have very low vaccination rates. They have surging infections and really high mortality. And we can see that in other countries, the potential for that same harm is there. So it's really critical that we are able to roll out vaccine and support vaccine for other countries so that they can also bring infections under control.
1: Professor Professor D'Souza, what's a realistic way for us to think about How much worse things are going to get in India? How long this surge is going to last, given what we know about the virus, given what we know about the vaccination rate, and given what we saw in in other countries that have had surges, including the United States, Brazil, and more?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit hard to know because we are not sure exactly how many infections there really are in India. We know it's a very high number, but not everyone is getting tested, so estimates are that probably five to ten times as many infections are as occurring as we're counting and we, we know that because of what we're seeing with deaths. Um, the really, uh, the thing about infectious disease is that we have this exponential increase. Once infection starts to spread and it's uncontrolled and people are susceptible, such as the case in India um, or, or anywhere that, that has not yet had high vaccination, um, we can see doubling of the number of infections, you know, every week if we don't contain it. And so what what's going to what's going to happen in India right in the next few weeks really depends on whether they close things down and physically distance, because that is the only way to get things under control until they get back uh, So as the world reopens,
0: as maybe travel starts to open around the world, is that a good thing in your view versus especially when we've got hot spots around the world when it comes to covid? Is
2: traveling a good idea? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for now, I would keep travel domestic. Okay. As a vaccinated person, it is okay to get on a plane, um, but... You know, you have to think about the risk where you're going if that when you're vaccinated, risk is low, but it is not zero. And when you're traveling internationally, there's just a lot more factors, um, mm-hmm. you know, that you cannot control.
1: It does feel um, though, like I got to tell you, mm-hmm. it does feel like risk is, is almost zero. Just good numbers that we see from the CDC mm-hmm. with these mRNA vaccines. It really feels like these are these are, you know, super vaccines.
2: Well, they are great. The breakthrough infections, yeah. infections among people who are vaccinated are really low. Um, So, again, part of it depends on your your risk spectrum. I'm vaccinated and I feel comfortable traveling. I personally am not going to travel internationally, but it's not. Mm. um, You know, if you're traveling internationally, many other countries have low rates. Um and right. your own risk as a vaccinated person is absolutely low. Professor DeSouza there still is a raging pandemic. Right. right? Professor in other DeS- parts of the world. Yeah, no, good point. Um
0: twenty five seconds here. Kids important to get them vaccinated to help us get to herd immunity or not necessarily? Just quickly. Yeah,
2: we are all in this together and okay. the virus will continue to dis- continue to circulate among whoever is not vaccinated. So right now we don't have children vaccinated. The infection can absolutely continue to circulate among them. My 16-year-old's getting his second dose tomorrow. I'm really excited. Mm. Um, you know, our younger children, There's. it looks like we're going to be able to vaccinate the 12- to 15-year-olds hopefully starting next week. Um, but, yeah. uh, again, we will not be able to stop infection if we don't vaccinate all of our, uh, you know, any of the right. children.
0: All right. jam packed full of great information. Mm-hmm. Professor uh, Amber D'Souza. Thank you so much. Professor of epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Radio. So, Sad shock this morning. It was about the passing of the very respected and very successful and longtime head of the Yale Endowment. We're talking, uh, Tim, about David Swenson at the age of 67.
1: Janet Lauren is higher education finance reporter for Bloomberg News and joins us now on the phone from New York City. Janet, what is what is David Swenson's legacy going to be?
3: Well, I think his legacy can be summed up in two words, diversification and uh, the protégés that he trained. Hmm. Uh, Think about it. When he came to the Yale Endowment in 1985, the investments were mostly plain vanilla stocks and bonds, and he thought, you know, how can I get these longer-term returns for a place like Yale that's already been around for hundreds of years, and His mission was to fund it for hundreds more, as his good friend uh, Charlie Ellis told me on the phone this morning. And um, he found ways to invest that just were not being done at the time. Remember, 1985, he put money in real estate, you know, as the portfolio grew, real estate, hedge funds, private equity, even timber, and venture capital. You know, he really made a huge mark in venture capital in the the growth of the endowment.
0: You know, what's interesting... (laughs) It's interesting, Chad, I'm listening to your talk and I think about, okay, these are things that we, yep, we could talk about alternative assets, but it's become so much more normal today. But back then, it was unheard of.
3: Yes. And if you think about what he did, um, you know, he just cultivated these relationships. He um, was not going to do things that he did not think was right. And we had a, a comment in our story today from Rick Levin who, you know, knew him for 40 years, you know, they, they met in the Yale um, Economics Department in the 1980s. You know, he said that he would never invest with a manager who, who he didn't believe to be scrupulously honest and fair-minded. People who skated close to the line repelled him. So he was not going to put his money with people and investment managers and trust Yale's money with people who were not, you know, he, he just didn't find their, their character um, good character. He invested in people. He wasn't investing in the mechanisms. It was the people he was investing with.
1: Well, when it comes to the type of job that that he had for so many years, there's only one number that matters. And that's the annualized returns. As you point out in your piece, the investment office at Yale generated annualized returns of 10.9% in the decade through June 2020, the best among all eight Ivy League schools and 9.9% annually over 20 years. Um, Just how much better did Yale do? How much better is is Yale positioned for the next three hundred years because well, because of him?
3: Well, when he started, the value of the endowment was a billion dollars, hmm. so maybe that gives you a little wow. Perspective. So, yeah, and uh, he, um, you know, it was it was based on, um, you know, again, it was the people and thinking about new ways to invest. And as Charlie Ellis said this morning. You know, he he just was investing for the long term. And, you know, a place like bonds did not have a place there. And, uh, you know, timber. Think about timber and and the value today of timber with what's been going on with lumber prices. Um, You know, it's really quite extraordinary.
0: I love in your story, um, there's a, a, a note about on his 20th anniversary in 2005, uh, Swenson was given a chart showing the $7.8 billion in additional return the endowment generated using his strategy over two decades, ranking it as the biggest financial donation ever in the history of yield. Yale which was founded of course back in 1701 so what? like like perspective <laughs> yeah. right Janet just about the impact he had just quickly got about 20 right. seconds your final right. thoughts well, yeah
3: well and in in, in he was most proud that you know that this money would be going on scholarships and research and and helping kids and he taught an undergraduate class for 35 years in the last the last he taught on Monday that class mm. that was the last day of classes so that's well, that's the perspective
0: yeah It gives you an idea of kind of the individual he was. Janet, thank you so much. Really, it's a must read. And it is the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past hours on this Thursday. Janet Lauren is higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. Yeah,
1: what an incredible legacy. Yeah. and People went from, you know, his his tutelage to other universities and changed institutional investing the way that they were thinking about endowments. It was a big, big change in terms of what he did uh, so many decades ago.
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: So in the new issue of the magazine, President Biden is coming for you. Well, at least some of you and more specifically, the tax loopholes that the rich cherished him.
1: Yeah. Uh, Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us right here in the interactive at Brokers Studio. Peter Coy is economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week and joins us now on the phone from New Jersey. Joel, uh, Carol and I were talking when you came in here, whenever you're talking about First of about all, taxes, you're
0: here with oh, us yeah. in the studio.
1: Celebrate. In the this, is, this is like our
0: first guest in the studio. It is yeah, great to well, have you in here. It's Not a just guest. like
5: old times. It only took a year, but here <laughs> I am, all, all <laughs> up and everything.
0: We'll call this progress.
5: Taxes uh, are just complicated, no matter how you slice it that's right um and we're gonna and we've talked about this before we're gonna be reading a, a lot more about them and just like we've all been armchair quarterbacks about vaccines and viruses for the past year i think we're about to become armchair quarterbacks about all things taxes so i think peter's remarks to this issue was um the way that we wanted to to bring it to four again because there's a lot that we still don't know But what I told what I asked Peter was to sort of say, there's a strategy here, a tax strategy that Biden is trying to lay out a framework for. So help us understand it. So. So, Peter, there's one part of it, which is enforcement, and then it's married with this global plan. So talk to us about how the two come together and um, what we what we should expect.
6: Right. The goal
4: is to have a plan that is both uh, practical Uh, by linking together different parts that create the correct incentives to get people to pay, close the loopholes, and then also have it be politically doable, that it buys support from a broad range of people, at least enough to get it passed. So the the one thing that uh, I, I latched onto, first of all, was this idea of the step-up basis, so, which is a term I don't even use in a magazine because it's too technical. But the basic idea is that when you die right now, any capital gains that you uh, have on a stock or any other asset are reset to zero. And so your heirs don't have to pay taxes on the capital gains you earned, only on any future gains. And what that does is it preserves uh, dynasties which uh, I guess is a goal for some people, but it's definitely not Joe Biden's goal. Uh, he's trying to raise more money by taxing the rich more, and so he wants to get rid of the uh, step-up basis. He wants to couple that with an increase in the capital gains tax rate. And so this is an example of two pieces that are essential to each other. If all you did was raise the capital gains tax without getting rid of this uh, angel of death loopholes, it's called, then... Amazingly capital gains tax revenue will go down because people would just hey I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sell anything, I'll just wait till I die and my heirs will be able to get it uh, without paying tax. Uh, but as soon as you introduce as soon as you repeal this loophole, then suddenly it becomes a big revenue winner. So right. that's an example of what I'm talking about in this story.
1: Hey, hey Peter, why is it so difficult for the Biden administration or even Democrats in the past to close these loopholes, given that they affect such a small number of Americans. Yeah,
4: yeah well, that's right. I mean, let's just, just mathematically, you're thinking, how is it that the 1% managed to be able to outdo the 99% again and again? And, and yeah. the one obvious reason is people, they'll just say, look, okay, we're rich, but we're also paying a large share of the of the bill for everything the nation spends money on, whether it's defense or social spending, so... Come on, we're already, we're already doing our share. That's one argument. And that resonates with some people. And, geez, how much do we really want to put at all in these few people? And then, then another is that they'll, they'll argue, and this is a little more controversial, that if you tax them more, they'll stop doing what they do. They'll stop uh, investing and maybe... Uh, well- Inventing.
0: Let me jump in there, because that's the thing that I find interesting. You know, what is the impact of taxes on behavior? I mean, I right. think people will say, you know, because you've got a mortgage interest deduction, you often buy a house kind of thing. But that not, isn't necessarily the case up in Canada. So, you know, what is the impact of higher taxes, whether it be in terms of buying stocks, whether it's on corporations right. and they're investing in right. CapEx and R&D? Right. Do, what's the research on that?
4: So going back to, like, the 1980s when the Reagan... Uh, famous 1986 Tax Reform Act passed. That was the sort of the high watermark for the idea that tax rates need to be low to uh, preserve incentives to work and invest. But over the past, and I I talked to James Paterba, who's an MIT economist, and he's the president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, i.e. represents really the establishment when it comes to academic economics. And he said okay a it would be a mistake to assume that households and firms do not respond to tax rates but b the consensus estimates of the size of that response has probably declined over the last 25 years so that answers your question it says yeah sure taxes matter but maybe not quite as much people used to think you can raise taxes uh from where they are now without trashing the economy or trashing people's incentives
5: peter so how worried should the wealthy be about this? I mean, there's going to be incredible resistance. Right. Uh, I also know that tax lawyers are very, very, very good at what they do. Um, so so how how worried do you think people should be?
4: Oh, well, let's take one example, which is the one we've been talking about, the raising the capital gains tax. If you really believed that Biden was going to be able to do this, then you would start selling stuff now before the capital gains tax goes up. Um, if it does pass, you would then, it, but you were suspicious that it wouldn't last, that a Republican president would be elected next and reverse it, then you would not sell. Uh, I mean, you would hold on to assets because you'd figure, eh, let's just wait a while and see what happens. Maybe I'll be able to get a tax break in the future after all. So you're asking the right question because you, your your decisions are going to be heavily influenced by your assessment of the politics of this thing. Um, as I said, it, as you said, it it's a tough lift for Biden uh, with a Senate that's divided fifty fifty, and uh, so I would not guarantee that it will pass. And Biden's already making noises, for example, about. Retreating on the corporate income tax increase. Instead of going to 28%, he may go back to up to only 25%. So there will be room for some compromise here and there. I think something's going to pass, probably not the whole deal.
0: I'm just going to remind you the last line of your story is the 1% do have reasons to worry. <laughs> that, reason to no, worry. they
4: do. They just do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, great stuff. There's so much information in there, as every story that you do uh, usually does. Peter Coy, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone in New Jersey. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, right here in our studio. So nice to have you here.
5: Pleasure. I hope, I hope this is a regular thing, Joel. <laughs> we'll see each other again.
1: Good.
0: <laughs> Counting on it. The new issue of the magazine on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All
0: right, so we are 11 and a half hours?
1: No. Don't make me do math. Uh, 12 Let's say,
0: plus 8 yeah. and a half. So 20 and a half hours yeah. a day? I'm not I'm, No, no. 9 plus <laughs> tomorrow plus eight and a half. I, I can't even do it. Anyway, 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. Wall Street time. Yeah. We'll have that <laughs> monthly jobs report. I know. God, and I like math. Uh, one of the focal points of the week, no, no doubt about it, is tomorrow's monthly JAWS report. So let's see what she has to say when it comes to the U.S. labor market. Becky Frankowitz is president of Manpower Group North America. She's back with us on the phone from Chicago. Becky, how are you?
7: Hi, Carol. Doing well. Thank you.
0: Can you help me with the math? So nine hours to midnight, <laughs> then another eight. So that's 17 and a half hours. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. I'll trying down. to do the math with you just so you know. I was like, what is that math? I need fingers and toes here. Um,
7: how does it look?
0: the labor yeah, market.
7: So, yeah, so first, today's numbers, you know, on jobless claims show the labor market continues to rebound and we're seeing some first milestones of a reopening economy. And so we expect the number tomorrow to be strong. Um, today's jobless claims at 498 or a fresh pandemic era low, um, the lowest we've been since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, keep in mind, Carol that, you know, we were running about 225,000 jobless claims prior. So we mm-hmm. still have some room to go,
3: mm-hmm. but
7: huge milestone. You know, another another milestone is the first time in twelve months we're seeing demand come back in the areas hit hardest by the pandemic. You know, retail, food service, and yes, even travel. So we're seeing job mm-hmm. creation in, in travel. And you know, the last first I'd mention to you is and, and maybe most importantly, for the first time there are more job openings than before the pandemic hit and fewer people in the labor force. And so demand is there, and now we need to focus on supply.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that, because just a few moments ago, Carol and I talked about a story uh, written by a few of our colleagues here about the job paradox that's baffling economists as U.S. employers uh, see a shortage. What is the cause? Because company CEOs have repeatedly pointed to unemployment benefits, but it's more complicated than that.
7: It is it is actually quite complicated and I would say it's two-sided and so we've spent a lot of time focusing on attracting workers but the number one challenge for employers today Tim is keeping the workers you have and so we're increasingly seeing employers fall into two buckets you're either a source for talent or you're a destination for talent and the top mm. focus should be a destination for talent but to your question you know competition is coming in a variety of forms other industries, these sectors that were paused, that are rehiring now, and yes, even the government as stimulus continues. Um, You know, the last thing I'd tell you that is super complicated is the human factor, Tim. So people going through crisis, history has told us they're looking for change. And Mm -hmm. so people are more open to changing jobs, and millennials are even more open than the general population. So, you know, it is complicated, but the the fact remains, you know, employers have to make themselves the destination for talent.
0: How much... Whether or not you can go back to uh, an employer that offers a hybrid working environment, how much of that is a factor on whether or not you go to your existing employer or you look elsewhere?
7: Yeah, so it, you know, 60% of the jobs in our country have some form of on-site, meaning you have to come to work to do something, a lot of that is manufacturing driven, 40% can be done remote. But even in that 60%, Carol, Mm. you know, workers are looking for flexibility. And so we are seeing even manufacturing environments respond, you know, things like shift stacking. So instead of doing an eight-hour shift, break it into two four-hour shifts so that you can attract a part-time worker and or college students back into the workforce. And so flexibility is important for both remote and jobs that are required, require you to be on site. And it is a factor.
1: But isn't there this really easy way to attract and retain talent called money? i mean come on like is it it's
0: it's just it like we're gonna pay you a ton of money so just come back or what i i I mean i
1: i don't just it's the money right i
0: hope everybody's watching on youtube because tim's just doing some fun physical
1: things it seems so simple to me
7: (laughs) well tim it is it is a lot about the money i would tell you so if you take you know the stimulus and we've done this state by state to help you know our clients understand you know what they're facing in terms of competition You know, a a worker on average with all the stimulus can make up to $29 an hour. And so it is in, in large part about the money, both from the government as well as from other employers that are competing for your talent.
0: So when the stimulus goes away, would you anticipate that the available work pool will kind of bloom at that moment?
7: Yes, we we hope so. You know, but I said something important earlier that, you know, we have fewer people in the labor force and some of that, of course, are people that are, you know, on the sidelines. Some of that we're afraid are people who have opted out. And so we're going to have to attract those workers back in. And one of the things that will be important is the flexibility and this ability to continue to learn and grow your career. I mean, it, it is, you know, we, we've quickly gone back to a worker's economy, and we're, we're going to all have to work hard to get everybody back into the workforce. Really? Is it a worker's economy? It, it Increasingly a worker's economy today. And, again, a lot of that is from the competition, Carol. I mean, we, okay. we have more jobs then we have workers in the workforce today and so we have to do something to bring them back in mm-hmm. you know, and we're we're telling our clients you know focus on widening your pool so right size your education you know just by um, looking at education requirements you can increase the labor pool by 15 percent you know look at transferability with a key emphasis on that word ability you know, look at the skills that can cross sectors from food service into warehouse and logistics. Um, So we've gone through by skill level to say there's more commonality than difference if we choose to look at people by their abilities as a characteristic versus what their previous job titles were.
1: Becky, we had a great story this week. Uh, The big take was uh, about the unequal recovery that we've seen in different parts of the United States and different sectors as well. Um, Where are you seeing sector concern right now? And we only have about um, 45 seconds left.
3: Yes, yeah, so
7: the sector concern continues to be, you know, in the in the hospitality and leisure area. We are yeah. seeing that come back, but it's not coming back as quickly. It's it's not anywhere near back to pre pandemic, and that's going to take time.
0: Right, we're hearing about more automation within that sector as well. Yes, yeah. um, good stuff, Becky. Thank you so much. Be well, and nice to hear from you again, Becky Frankowicz. She's president, of Manpower Group North America, on the phone from Chicago. But it is interesting, you know. Uh, I love what she said about Challenge today. keeping the workers you have, right? And we've heard this. You know, this has been kind of a theme for a long time. It costs the company when they lose a worker, mm-hmm. right, to bring somebody in or get that person, retrain. So, and especially when it's kind of a tight labor force right
1: now. Right. One of those uh, data points to watch is the, the quit rate and mm-hmm. how frequently people are quitting. Uh, right. And oftentimes they do that in a really strong economy, really strong labor market. That jolts
0: number that I think about yeah. Janet Yellen used to, to focus on so much.
4: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, just got about a little under 10 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Charlie mentioned we've been bouncing around. We have been up and down on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, about a 300-point swing on it. But right now, we are hovering near our highs of the session, probably a record right here on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Let's get to it with Doug Sioka, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. They've got roughly $930 million in assets under management. Back with us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. Doug, good to have you back here with Tim and myself. How are you?
6: I am great, thank you. How are you guys?
0: Doing well, doing well. It feels like the world is opening up. The sun is shining here in New York City. Uh, the environment, how do you see the outlook for the equity markets right now?
6: You know, I mean, obviously, like you said, we hit record again today in the Dow. It could be the first day in five on the NASDAQ. I mean, the rotation that began, you know, really the end of the last year, fourth quarter of last year, and it's taken itself through the first four months of this year, it's been pretty pronounced, and we think it still has some traction, right? If you think what worked last year, big growth, um, domestic, and what's working a lot better this year, small value, and to a lesser degree, foreign. But, you know, we've seen some significant uh, batons handed off you know, from some of the largest, most impactful players. And there's a lot of things that you can quote to point that out, but nothing I think, Carol, s- s- speaks more highly to it than the fact that the equal-weighted S&P is up 600 basis points more in performance than the market cap-weighted S&P. Hmm. That's pretty pronounced.
0: Wow, it is pretty pronounced, which tells you then what about kind of from where we go from here?
6: Yeah, you know, I think that you, you still have to think that, you know, if, if you're concerned about like the value rotation having legs for the first time in what? I don't know, I guess 2018 value <laughs> outperformed, but that was the first time maybe once in the last 13 years. Right. You know, we think that there's still some traction to that mm. only in so much as our outlook for inflation is probably a little bit more. Uh, are a little bit less transitory than what the Fed has been saying. You know, I think that what we've seen from supply line disruption, absence of identification of, of uh, active labor uh, engagement, you know, there's going to be some pressure on prices for a while, and we're going to need an economy that runs hot enough that it can offset those, or we could see a little bit of a stalling out. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things, because the market never corrects modestly, right, in any realignment it does, is we think there's actually some interesting opportunity in in what we're now calling um, the rotation respite stocks.
0: Hmm. Right? What does that mean? Like, yeah.
6: So so last year, right, coming out of big growth in domestic and transitioning to this year being small value and foreign, right? It's probably overcorrected to a certain extent, particularly in the area of, of tech, right? Tech and fintech have been significant laggards so far this year, and the market has massively favored things like energy and financial. And another great example, in addition to tech, where that overcorrection has taken place is within healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? So many companies had this perception of their fortunes being elevated due to associations with COVID, right? COVID testing, COVID provisioning, COVID vaccinating, but that really overlooked the core competencies of some of the businesses. And the COVID cash flow undeniably represented a very defensive aspect of their profit cycle. But the cyclical elements we maybe and likely, we hope, will more than offset that secular decline. I mean, if you think about elective surgery, close to all the way back, Mm -hmm. diagnostic testing, analytical instrumentation, research invigoration, right? Hopefully one of the permanent positive offshoots of the pandemic is this reacquaintance with the fact that we have to nonstop be developing drugs, be re, uh, resupplying the stockpile, you know, being anticipatory about future pandemic threats. All that really leans heavily in favor of healthcare. Hey,
1: Doug, um, I want to go back to what you were saying about inflation. Uh, what was the specific moment or the specific data point that led you to the conclusion that inflation is going to be less transitory than the Fed thinks?
6: Yeah, I think when you when, when we've listened to a lot of earnings reports, Tim, and I do think being in the business we are, we have clients all around the country you know, in industrial business, manufacturing business, service technology, and just hearing things anecdotally, hmm. you know, about how difficult it has been where companies used to have commitments to meet order fulfillment five days after a purchase order. Now they're hopeful to have 90, and they're really difficult. They've had a difficult time in making even that timeline stick. So when you think about lumber being up 300%, when you think about yeah. steel and copper, which are certainly better known, I mean, those are the kind of things that will not work themselves out in a period of weeks and months but it could be a period of quarters and years right so that to me is is is, is, is not consistent with the term of transitory
0: so doug this goes right oh, okay so that's what i was gonna say yeah. it goes back to like how do you define transitory <laughs> is it a couple of yeah. quarters or is it a couple of years and you're saying this is going to be a little bit longer and it's not transitory
6: uh, yeah I, I i think it's it is not transitory i, I think yeah. i think a transitory is being a qu- I mean, maybe a quarter two event i think this is a year or two event i mean go try to buy a refrigerator Go try to buy an outbuilding on, on a big plot of land. Try to find, you know, an organization that, that will recycle your copper from, you know, from an otherwise dormant manufacturing site. I mean – the timelines for meeting those expectations well, are so far outside of a typical expectations. So
0: how do we react to that in your view? Do we as consumers, or business consumers, do we say I'm going to put off the purchase until the supply chain is, you know, more in line with the demand or do I pay more for it? And are there like price wars going on for stuff?
6: Yeah, hmm. I'd say that's a great question. And I think it comes to, to the definition of like, purchase gratification delay, right? Is it permanent from an impairment standpoint or is it just put off? And I think that's sort of where the rub is because if it's something that defers purchase, I'm sorry, impairs purchase permanently, then you're not going to get that recovery. And when the supply lines are replenished, you're going to have an economy that won't have absorption that has the prospects of something called stagflation, which would be really bad. So what the economy needs to be doing is focusing on keeping the velocity as high as it possibly can, not putting in frictional impediments that otherwise could be, whether they're politically motivated, whether they're bureaucratically motivated, whether it's, it's, a, it, it's border war motivated. There has to be enough lubricant in order for those products to want to be consumed when they are available to the market. Now, keep in mind, one of the things that is helpful about inflation is it invites competition. And nothing invites competition like pricing power. You have capital costs low. You have barriers to entry low. Inflation could actually assist the Fed in threading the needle, timing-wise, to get away with extracting stimulus when they do, so they could let the economy be more on a sustainable footing organically as opposed to synthetically, so, which we've been on now for the last 18 months. So just very
1: briefly, in about 30 seconds, does it change your outlook for when the Fed is going to raise interest rates, and what's your estimate for that?
6: Yeah, Tim, that's tough. I mean, I was I was, I was reading some of Kaplan's comments from down in Dallas this morning, and he seems to be a little bit counter to what Powell is saying. You know, Powell obviously is just taking him out of control. I think the Texas economy is, is somewhat independent of what's taking place in the United States, they're seeing things that maybe aren't replicated around the country, so Powell would be a better barometer for the whole country. But it, it likely won't be as quickly as Kaplan thinks or as long as Powell thinks.
0: All right. God, certainly fun time to be <laughs> alive and just kind of watching what's going on. Uh, Doug Sioka, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer, partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $930 million in assets under management. Doug joining us, as he often does, on the phone from Leewood, Kansas.